Hello listeners, welcome to HIV in Focus, a podcast series created by Gilead Sciences to explore the most pressing issues for people living with HIV and to provide practical bite-sized tips for clinicians from experts in the field. I'm Dr Naomi Sutton, I'm your host of the series. Um, I'm a sexual health consultant working in Rotherham and I've been lucky enough to have a number of media roles including the sex clinic on E4 and I try and use these platforms for education for the wider public. Very excited today to introduce this one on mental health. We've called it just about coping mental health in HIV. We're going to chat a little bit about how we approach mental health as healthcare professionals with our patients, how simply addressing these issues can improve adherence and retention in care. And I have the most wonderful guest today, Michelle Croston, who is going to introduce herself over to you, my fabulous Michelle. Oh, thank you so much, Naomi, for inviting me to share this conversation with you today on something that I'm extremely passionate about. So I'm an Associate Professor of Nursing at the University of Nottingham. I have had the pleasure of working in HIV care for over 20 years now at a national and international level. I'm actually really passionate about this subject of mental health and psychological support. So I'm really delighted that you've offered me this opportunity to have a great conversation with you about what we can do to support people living with HIV and also to think about ourselves as healthcare professionals and providers of care within that conversation as well. So thank you very much. It's totally our pleasure. So we know there's lots and lots of evidence, for example, from Positive Voices in 2018, that people living with HIV in the UK are significantly more likely than the general population to experience mental health symptoms of anxiety and depression. And I think from from my own experience, I feel sometimes we don't feel confident enough to open up these conversations, partly because maybe we don't know what to do with the trauma if it unfolds. I know, Michelle, that you're passionate in us talking more. So tell us, how do we start to broach these sometimes tricky subjects? Yeah, thank you, Naomi. I think it is a really tricky subject and an area of care that I think people, like you've mentioned, may lack the confidence or the belief that they can have these conversations. So I think for the purpose of this conversation with us today, it might be useful to think about support using that step care model. And that's part of the psychological standards for care. So for listeners out there who aren't familiar with what that step care model is, and for me, it was something that I learned about when I when we undertook the National HIV Nurses Association audit on um, support for people living with HIV from a psychological um, kind of um, perspective. And essentially, the step care model looks at the type of support people may need. So level one and is um, kind of support that anybody accessing your service should be able to kind of give. Level two might require um a higher level of support so and I think that's where we sit as nurses and doctors providing care this like level two support these soft skills that we have that we've developed throughout our training and we may go to kind of continual professional development courses to be be able to provide this support the level three support is where kind of the counsellors the psychologists the mental health professionals sit and um, who've undertaken professional validated qualifications in order to give that higher level of support and then level four is your mental health services your 
psychiatrist and your inpatient support. And I think it's really important that we define the differences here because if we're thinking about people who are accessing support, we wouldn't just put a band-aid on something that needed stitches. We would onwards refer them and also similarly if those services wasn't available we would do everything in our power um, as clinicians as providers of care to ensure those services were available so what I think we could talk about within this kind of um, podcast together today is what we could do practically for those level one and two support when we see people um, within our services um, as well. Sounds absolutely perfect (laughs) And also, I know when we were talking earlier, I mean, I love the I love the analogy of putting a Band-Aid on something that needs its stitches. Um, I think we can always all relate to that. But th- there are lots of factors that drive that are driving mental health, aren't they? Tell me, if, t- explain a few of those to me. So I guess we see we can see mental health um, sometimes as what we'd say like absolutes. You've either got it or you haven't good mental health. And actually, it's more on a continuum, I'd, I'd kind of say, that we all have a mental health or a psychological well-being. And lots of different things affect our quality of life and our ability to maybe engage with care um, and also kind of provide our own self-care as well. So I think we can talk about mental illness as in kind of diseases such as depression or illnesses I'm not sure if diseases is the right word because I think we need to be careful around stigma in the language we use when talking about um, mental health um, and HIV as well so we've got obviously depression anxiety and some other mental health conditions that people may experience and then also there is just a you know quality of life issues that can affect our psychological well-being so it is a really really broad subject to think about and I guess it's thinking about what would be beneficial for the people that we're providing care for and a bit going back to that analogy of putting stitches or putting a plaster over a wound we need to really look at what's going on for somebody and kind of asking questions in order to be able to find them the support that they would need in in that moment really so it's kind of really having those honest and open conversations with people to find out actually what is what is going on for you right now and what support is it you think that you could you could need to help with this situation yeah and and definitely from my experience I feel even just asking what are the main stresses in life so sometimes it could just be financial or they need help with food for example or fuel poverty or relationship issues and and um, I know we're going to talk about this a lot but sometimes it's just having an ear to listen to can be enough and I think we can't we can't stress that enough that letting someone talk and you know be seen be heard can often be enough there's not always an underlying mental health problem or disease sometimes it's just a really stressful life situation isn't it and they've no one else to talk to yeah definitely Naomi I think you've kind of touched on that really well you know if we're thinking about and um, there's a great analogy from the mental health first aid training that I deliver about considering it like as a stress container so we all have and this is useful to think about for us as providers of care we all have our own stress container so throughout the day things are getting dropped in our stress container and then if we don't release them with w- whatever coping mechanisms we have and um, 
um, then we, we're in the danger of emotional snapping. So, we, you know, the container overflows. And you can, I can think about that for myself. You know, sometimes things are things that bother me one day might not bother me the next day. But it's kind of thinking about actually what is in my kind of stress container that I may need just some some support with. And kind of like you said, that listening, that release of some of that stress to prevent that kind of emotional snapping or that um yeah i think emotional snapping is probably the the best word to describe it yeah the, the straw that breaks the camel's back i know i know i, I have several of those it's, it's almost you come home you're like ah the dishwasher <laughs> it really doesn't bother me but that would be the one thing if i've had a really bad day that tips me over the edge into um yeah just going and having a cry in the shower often that's my coping mechanism a lot of the time Absolutely. And I think it's really useful to think about, actually, we talk about good coping mechanisms and bad coping mechanisms. And I think it's about being that self-aware enough to think about what is it do I need in this moment to make me feel okay and there's some great work done by Dan Siegel and I think we can share with the listeners a a small clip about that and he talks about the hand brain model and about this kind of emotional snapping and about actually it's um, an evolutionary process so it's how do we get better before we kind of um, release and enter into you know more unhelpful ways of coping such as you know fighting with people in our family or you know doing some destructive behaviors um as well so we can definitely share that with the listeners if that they are interested in learning a little bit more about that um approach to kind of understanding our emotional regulations and things and we were talking obviously about you know copingisms and sometimes it is just having someone to talk to and i think especially as doctors i'm sure I don't know how nurses are taught, but we're taught to fix things and we like to give out a pill or send someone on somewhere or do something. But but I think definitely what I've learned through experience is actually just sitting there, being with the person, putting your pen down, just going, just tell me all about it and offering a tissue. That's that's doing something, isn't it? But you know, that can be enough for somebody, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've just um, kind of hit the nail on the head really well there by saying, you know, that's how we're taught, isn't it? You know, definitely there's been lots of work in undergraduate nursing programs. I'm not sure about medical programs to think about. We call them soft skills, but actually they're really hard skills to that kind of being with somebody when they're distressed and that, you know, we are trained to fix things. We're nice people, we're caring professions and we want to make things better for other people and that's like the human nature knows that we see somebody distressed and we have this response and we want to make it okay for them and I think it's really hard just to sit with somebody and witness their distress but there's something really powerful in for that person being listened to I know there's been times when I've been really upset and somebody's just given me that space held that space for me to listen and it's felt really good. I've not necessarily wanted them to fix things or solve things, but it's just kind of having that out there for me to then start making sense of um, as well. Yeah, and that's a good reminder for us not to tell people, don't cry. You know, when someone's sitting there in front of you, let someone cry because they're crying for a reason and, and it's your own discomfort that's making that's the reason you want to stop them crying is because you feel uncomfortable with it. So it's almost about sitting with your own discomfort and absorbing it, I guess. I mean, I think that takes us on a little bit to, you know, as well as sitting with this 
discomfort, we need to make sure that we are also caring for ourselves as well as healthcare professionals, which um, I think we're, we're not always very good at, are we? No, and I, I think you're right. I think it, it's hard that we, we kind of end up kind of giving all of our emotional energy and our reserves to the people that we're providing care for. And it sometimes can feel selfish to think, well, actually, I maybe need some time out now. I need to kind of emotionally refuel. But actually, self-care is not selfish. It's essential part of being um, able to, to turn up every day and give the care that that we need um, as well. And one of the reasons why I kind of came to the University of Nottingham is we we do something called resilience-based clinical supervision. And I know the term resilience has lots of connotations and it means different things to different people. But essentially it's about creating a space for people providing care to really think about the impact or the the psychological cost of caring as well in a safe space to enable them to then go out and provide care um, for people more um, therapeutically or in a in a better place understanding actually the impact that this is having on us as well so I think that's something that as professionals we need to think about how we support our own well-being moving forward. We were talking weren't we when we were talking about this podcast about kind credits so, you know, we all have a certain amount of them. I mean, we've made that term up totally. It's probably terrible. But you, you have a certain amount of kind credits. And if you give them all out all the time, don't get them replenished. That's when you're, you know, you're going to be crying in the shower or, you know, dealing with stress. Um, but, you know, just looking after your colleagues, making a cup of tea, you know, just checking in with them. And, and I find just having a good old moan about, what, what I've seen with, um, you know, I'm very, very lucky. I work with brilliant um, women who I can, you know, go, oh, and just, yeah, totally get it all off my chest. And we all all chip in. and Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's great that you've got that space where you can, you can offload with your colleagues and, you know, get the support that you need in that moment. And I think when we're talking about resilience, and that's a word that we band around a lot, definitely in nursing, I'm not sure what that's like in medicine, but, you know, there is that personal capacity, what we bring to the table. So our own resources, how we've dealt with things in the past, the environment. So sometimes, as you've mentioned, the work that we do places is in positions that actually, you know, nobody, you know, we, we deal with a lot of distress. We deal with a lot of upset people, lots of horrible stories. We see the best and worst of humanity. And sometimes there's not a lot that can protect us from that. So having access to what we'd say good quality support and whether that's just a moment to debrief or to talk about what's happened or whether that's some supervision to say, actually, I might not have dealt with that as well as I could, or this is what was affecting the relationship. Can we do this differently to provide better care is is probably something that we need to think about more as we move forward. Definitely in nursing, as we've got massive recruitment and retention issues as well. Mm. And even, you know, accessing psychological therapy and things like that, looking at how we deal with our own, our own traumas, because we all have coping mechanisms, don't we? I think, um, and again, I think, especially from medics, I think we're often quite reticent in asking for help because it's seen as as a shameful thing to do. I think we're getting better, I hope. I think there's quite a lot of shame around admitting that you can't cope. Yeah, definitely. And I think that 
and in nursing as well. I mean, there was a report that landed in um, just before the pandemic. Lots of things seem to just land before the pandemic, and I'm not sure that they kind of got the airtime that that was needed. But if you, the prevalence of suicide within nursing is really, really high and upsetting as well. And some of the things reading through the the report on that is about that accessing support. You know, for lots of reasons, um, healthcare professionals don't access support. Um, maybe that's that inbuilt thing well I need to cope and you know um, the fear of other colleagues seeing you and um, you, you know when you're accessing that support or just having that awareness that actually I might need something right now so I think there is a piece of work that we need to do as professionals to say actually it's okay not to be okay and I know that's something that's banded around a lot in mental health and now I'm delighted to say that these dedicated support lines for um, healthcare professionals who are struggling and I was um, fortunate I don't think fortunate is the right word because um, I worked on those during the pandemic and saw a lot of distress with healthcare professionals but it's great that these exist that people can get support um, to prevent um, suicides as well. And um, obviously a lot of our well some of our patients will have experienced severe trauma and um I know the uh, being trauma informed is a it's a fairly new concept. Uh, can you explain to the listeners what that actually means? Yeah, I I mean I came across trauma informed care kind of by by accident. I think I was fortunate enough to work with a mental health student who started talking about this approach that they were adopting within a women's uh, inpatient service. So I became oh gosh, what's this? And I've I've been I interviewed um, Angelina Nambia, and she was talking again about um, this trauma informed approach. So for listeners who aren't familiar with um, trauma informed care, it's coming to the consultation or coming to um, an understanding that we've all experienced trauma so um, and providing care and support in a way that we don't want to re-traumatize people so that's why we think about the language that we use in in care so um, probably off the top of my head thinking about women who are going for a smear it may be that that re-traumatizes them based on the experiences that they've been through before. So really thinking about how can we reduce the amount of triggers for the, that person within that. And I think what I like about the idea of trauma-informed care, so pro- providing care through the lens that we've all experienced trauma and the impact that can have on us um, within the care relationship, the trauma-informed care approach acknowledges us as providers of care within that so we all come to the table with our own trauma histories as well so it's being mindful of that when we're dealing with people as as well so kind of really thinking about that partnership approach and the language that we use within that and also kind of being more aware of our own triggers um, when dealing with people we provide care for as well and getting that support that we need um, as well. And I want to share one of my examples um, of because I was pretty much unaware of this whole sort of body of thinking. And I, and I I hope I think of myself as a fairly empathetic person. I'm just looking at body language, everything. But I know when I was when I'm examining a woman, for example, I used to say, "Just relax your legs," and it's totally the wrong thing to say because often if they have been sexually assaulted, a man potentially would have said, "Just relax." So now I never use that word relax. I just say let your legs flop, because and but again it's it's someone has to some. I mean, 
you often learn through someone commenting or whatever. But again, it's about reflection, thinking, God, how have I never come across this before? And I've been examining women for, you know, 15 years, um, examining genitals, and I'd never come across it. And so now all my trainees, I say, never use that word ever. You say, let the legs flop. But again, I think it's about, you know, always reflecting, always learning. We are going to make mistakes. And again, I think most people, if you apologise and say, gosh, I'm dreadfully sorry, I'm not quite sure how to deal with this situation or whatever, then I think it's most people appreciate that if you're human. So saying sorry, I think, is a really good thing to to learn to do as well. Yeah, no, I exactly. And I think it's about that kind of collaborative work in which I think we do extremely well in HIV care, isn't it? We, you know, I'm definitely not afraid to say I'm, I'm not sure about this right now. Can you help me to understand what would make things easier for you? Um, and I think definitely the HIV doctors and nurses that I've worked with, I think we're really good at kind of holding our hands up and saying, I'm not sure right now, but give me a chance um, and apologise if I make a mistake and I'm fumbling around these, you know, like hot topics and just trying to do my best. And I think people kind of, like you say, respect that. If you're genuinely trying to do your best and we have those, we, we mess up, it's kind of how we recover from that Um with support from people is is the main thing as well and I guess some of the biggest lessons I learned was with regarding language and having that invitation so inviting people to do things if it's comfortable to do so so on a different note I teach a lot of yoga and kind of inviting people to you know I used to say close your eyes well actually people may not feel safe closing their eyes you know invite inviting people to do things if it's okay for you would it be comfortable for you to do this or is there something that I can do to make it easy easy for you yeah and I guess you know the way we open up a mental health conversation we may need to say you know shall we have a chat about what we're talking about six months ago or whatever you were telling me that you were distressed about this that and the other shall we revisit it so asking permission I think as well to to go back there or, or to open it up in the first place yeah no I think that seeking permission is it okay to talk about this right now um because I think sometimes we we can have these really powerful conversations but then I, I always kind of like you just mentioned the more you learn the more you try to reflect back and think did I always do that okay Um, and I'm sure there's been times where I fumbled my way but we have these conversations we open these conversations but then that person leaves the consultation room in a distressed state so it's kind of actually is this a good time to have this conversation right now and also I guess we need to make sure that we've got the time to I guess ensure that they're okay afterwards so you need a little bit of time to wrap things up um so you may need yeah pick and choose when you open these issues so okay so we've chatted about that we need to listen more we need to um open up conversations what what if we don't have good support so you don't have good links to peer support etc are there any resources that we can direct people well we should mention peer support really in the first place shouldn't we I mean it's a fantastic really fantastic resource if you have good peer support um, because they often have more time don't they to talk to people and maybe understand more I think sometimes there's, there's always a barrier between a patient and a healthcare professional because of the role that we do whereas and that's the amazing fantastic uh, ability of peer support is that they're on the same level aren't they yeah, definitely. It's just something really powerful for somebody who's walked in 
in similar shoes to you but maybe just a bit further on in that journey um, than you are to get that that information and reassurance as well so yeah definitely peer support invaluable when we're thinking about that kind of step care approach as well and how we support people kind of moving throughout care because we were talking earlier weren't we, about all these amazing resources that you've got a hub of hope was the most incredible thing i think i've ever heard about it's basically a uh, website where you put in your postcode and it brings up all sorts of um, resources so financial resources mental health resources so t- tell me tell me about that Michelle it's my favorite one yeah so thanks Naomi that was a complete game changer for me so like I mentioned I did some support during the pandemic um on a mental health crisis line and they use this hub of hope so I think we've got lots of skills as healthcare professionals and the way we've been trained to try and problem solve and and work with somebody to kind of think about what is it they need right now Um, and then when I identified okay what would be useful maybe speaking to somebody about your alcohol intake or your your sleep and something like that so I identified all these and I was thinking oh okay but where do we go from here and a colleague introduced me to the hub of hope so once you've identified with somebody what they think would be useful for them right now you can go into the hub of hope website and put in the person's postcode and again that enables us from um, I'm not sure what your service is like Naomi but no they're definitely the service that I last work in we had people coming from far and wide to access the service so you can get their their postcode not your postcode their postcode and find out what services are local to them opening times um, and what they may need um, to help with that as well so it's a really good resource for that local tailored support yeah and it's, and and you know we were talking earlier it's not we have to think about things outside of just that person's health don't we so finance food um, immigration problems access to childcare, etc um, because if we do look at those things we know that relationships are better between you and the patient and also that then improves adherence and attendance and uh, basic engagement with care doesn't it yeah definitely I think it's thinking about that um, health related quality of life there's lots of things um, and that term means lots of different things for lots of to lots of different people so it's thinking about actually what do we need as different individuals to stay in our health and well-being and part of that will be engaging in HIV care taking treatment but there'll be other factors like you've mentioned like having food on the table having a roof over your head you know those that Maslow's hierarchy of needs we we might not be able to get to those higher order needs unless actually we've covered the bottom run which is having a roof over our head having access to food so whereas we we may be thinking oh yeah it's a great idea and I need to take my HIV treatment and I need to go to see beautiful Naomi in clinic actually I can't do that unless I've had something to eat so it's yeah it's thinking about the the whole picture really so Michelle we've talked about you know that we need to listen to our patients and uh, hear them but sometimes this can actually have a big toll on how we feel about ourselves doesn't it and and I I don't personally feel that we're very good always at looking after ourselves and our own psychological well-being 
Yeah, um, I, I completely agree, Naomi. And also, um, we've just undertaken some research as part of the National HIV Nursing Association, which looked at the psychological cost of caring for our HIV nurses during the pandemic um, and kind of before that as well. So I think historically, HIV care has always had quite a high emotional kind of burden for healthcare providers and if you look at the literature on that there's lots of theories around what we call secondary trauma um, which is the impact or the, the psychological cost of listening to really hard stories and being with really difficult situations as well but what I've kind of looked at when looking at that research it isn't been prevalent since I think it was the 80s when we first thought hang on a minute providing care and being compassionate with people could actually affect the provider. So I don't think we've ever been really good at saying this is tough and I'm finding it really hard to to kind of hold all these really hard and difficult stories because actually I'm a human being under this and actually me being human is probably my greatest superpower um, and I think sometimes we we think oh actually no I'll just keep that kind of you know under my cape I'll stay Clark Kent I won't show you my superpower of being kind of a human and then I'm probably not so good at saying actually it's a bit like kryptonite sometimes I need some some time to um, you know recover from from that as well. Yeah and, and I, I like to think of it a little bit like kind credits you know, we have a certain amount of kind credits and we can give them all away to our patients, but we need to replenish them somehow. So we do need to think about how we do that for ourselves. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we're just doing some work um, around self-compassion. And one of the biggest things in self-compassion is the, the, the kind of the killer question, if you like, is what do I need right now? You know, what is it I need? Do I need somebody to help me put a boundary in? Because I'm actually pretty bad at kind of just saying yes to everything. Or do I do I need some time out? Do I need to just, um, you know, go off, do, do something that's going to help help me? And I guess it's thinking about what do we do? in real time because you know we can't in the middle of a challenging conversation just say just pause there I'm just going to go and meditate it's kind of thinking about how we do this stuff before um, in order to be able to be there and there is a great chapter that myself and um, Alex Margaret wrote about kind of um, a step care approach to self-care for healthcare providers as well thinking about actually ahead of time if we're having a difficult day, if I know that I've got a difficult day coming on, um, I may pack something extra nice for my for my dinner. Just a way to try and, as you say, replenish some kind credits for me. Thinking, oh yeah, I've got that to look forward to, or plan something nice after work, maybe. I like that. A bit of, yeah, or coming home to a nice beer. <laughs> Definitely. So Michelle, I've I've so enjoyed talking to you, and I must say your voice is so calming. I think you should do some of these sleep apps or something and just relax everyone. I imagine you're a great yoga instructor. So thank you. So can you? So we we always like to sum up these podcasts with our sort of top tips. So can you summarise them for us? So thank you. I think one of my top tips would be find out what works for you. So what what makes you what brings you joy so what can you do that'll help you stay psychologically 
well and have that kind of emotional well-being as well so really work out actually what do I need in order to keep being amazing in the role that I do also find out what your local support for onwards referral would be for people who are going to Um, kind of share with you what they're struggling with uh, as well and the hub of hope is absolutely amazing for that as well so yeah top tips find out what you need to keep you well and also find out how you would support somebody else to stay well with the services that are local to you such as hub of hope and I guess my main ending point from what you said as well is and, and experience is that actually often it's not that scary just letting people talk can be enough you know we don't have to be psychologists or psych uh, psychiatrists to be able to help someone yeah there is something powerful really powerful in being listened to so we can all think of those times when we've really been heard and just the benefit of having that as well i should say as well all the links will be on the info uh, linked with the podcast for all these exciting uh, resources um, lots of them that we haven't managed to mention um, Michelle, on that note, please, can you tell us any social media handles that you'd like and that anyone could find you via? Yeah, so we've recently been working in collaboration with the National HIV Nurses Association and developed a podcast called HIV Matters. So you could find HIV Matters on Twitter. Well, thank you so much for your time, Michelle. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. And thank you everyone for listening to this episode of HIV in Focus. HIV in Focus has been created and fully funded by Gilead Sciences.